I confess that's one of my favorite songs. I was lost in utter darkness. My heart was bound in the darkness of sin. And why, Christian, can we sing a new song? Why can we sing praise to our God? Because His love rescued us. Amen. It's the power of the gospel over sin. Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I always am thrilled to have the opportunity to fill the pulpit when Ken is gone and when they can find absolutely nobody else. <laughs> it's a great place to be. This morning, I want to talk about the power to break sin's grip. A young Christian man, he came to me out of desperation, out of helplessness. See, what began as a seemingly harmless click on the internet led him into a battle for his heart and mind, a battle that he would wage for days, if not weeks, if not months, but for years. It quickly began to take over his thoughts and his actions. And while there were times, no doubt, when he was victorious, the battle for his purity, he was often riddled with guilt. In fact, he was even having a hard time sleeping, and it was beginning to negatively affect his relationship with his wife. He was feeling hopeless, enslaved by his sin. He confessed that he wished he had never clicked that link. And he wonders, how can I be saved when I seem to be powerless to fight this temptation? She seemed to be an ordinary mother of two, happily married, living the American dream. The only problem was she was angry didn't matter how well her kids did in school. didn't matter how many vases of flowers her husband brought home. Because life was not turning out the way she expected, the way she hoped, the way she was counting on. Life was flying by along with all of her hopes and dreams. Happiness was a faded memory, leaving only bitterness and depression she had begun to lash out toward her family, especially her husband. I mean, he was the problem, right? Ladies, you're just trying not to make eye contact or make any noise to that, aren't you? Even her best friends had slowly begun to distance themselves from her, fearing the next eruption. Now, you may or may not be able to identify with these stories that I've just read to you. But the reality is, there has probably been a time in your life when you felt like you were caught in the grip of sin. Maybe a pattern of lying. Maybe it was uncontrolled drinking. I hesitate to say this after spring break. Maybe overeating. Hypothetically. Maybe it's anxiety. 
And no matter how hard you try to break free, the grip seems to only tighten. And it's possible that we fear that we will be enslaved, locked in sin's grip. And of course, when this happens in seasons of struggle, in seemingly hopelessness, what do you begin to doubt, Christian? Your salvation. After all, Christ died for me. He set me free from sin. And if I'm truly a Christian, how come I sin so much? It begs the question, how much can a Christian sin and still be a Christian? You ever wondered that? How much can I sin as a Christian and still be a Christian? Thankfully, the Bible is not silent on this topic. In fact, in 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, we will find the power to break sin's grip. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. And I hope this morning we will find hope. As you're turning to 1 John chapter 3, let me give you some context. Most Bible scholars agree that the book of 1 John was written by the Apostle John while he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. In fact, if you look over at 1 John 5.13, we see a key text to understanding one of the main purposes why he wrote this book. 1 John 5.13, John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Who's he talking to? Who believes in the name of the Son of God? He's talking to Christians here. And what does he say? So that, here's the purpose, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think some of these Christians were struggling with their assurance of salvation. Maybe they found themselves seemingly enslaved to sin, and they too began to doubt, how can I truly be saved? And John says, I'm writing these things so that you may know, that you may be assured. In fact, throughout this letter, if we took the time to read and study the whole book, we would see that's one of his main purposes He wants to give these readers and you and I this morning assurance of our salvation by giving us a series of tests, tests to measure ourselves. The Word of God says, if you are truly a child of God, then this will be happening in your life. This change will be taking place. And so our text for this morning is going to ask us the following question. Here's the test. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Are the patterns of sin in your life decreasing? So here in 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, we will find four works of God that have broken the patterns of habitual sin in the Christian's life. This is where the power to break sin's grip originates. Let me read our text for us this morning. 1 John 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. 
The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, the first work of God that breaks sin's grip is found in verses 4 to 5. It's the completed work. The completed work, the work that Christ accomplished in his death. Notice what John says in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Now, this word practice is key. If you were to read the whole book of 1 John, you would see John uses this word constantly. And the word practice in the original language literally means to do or to make. So in this sense, we could translate it, is doing. Everyone who is doing sin is also doing lawlessness. And it carries the idea of of making something a habitual practice, almost like a life pattern. Now, how do we know this? Because all of the verbs dealing with sinning are in the present tense. And in the Greek language, what that means is the present tense means it's a continual, ongoing practice, unbroken. These are not occasional acts or seasons of sin. These are established, continuing patterns of sinful behavior. I mean, we understand this even in the English language. When we use the word practice, we understand what that means. If I'm in sports, what do I do? I practice Why? Because practice makes perfect. You practice driving a car. you got to learn somehow. When we came back from overseas, I had three of my four daughters practicing driving all at the same time. I think I aged prematurely. And it's not their fault. They were good drivers. It's the fact that I was not behind the wheel. I was not in control. It was terrifying. But how are they going to learn how to drive unless they, what? Practice. If I want to learn Spanish, guess what? i got to practice. So when I was a police officer in Los Angeles, guess what I practiced? Pongo sus manos en la ventana de enfrente. Despacio con sus manos izquierda. Abre la puerta con sus manos. Alto. Policía. No se mueva. How did I do? Sadly, did I do okay, Jorge? Was that good? I tried to get a little accident there. Sadly, that's all I remember because it's the only Spanish I, what? Practice all the rest of it like I will shoot you if you don't put the gun down. They taught me that. I don't remember that. I didn't practice it. When I go to Mexico, my Spanish does not help me. Put your hand in the windshield in front of you. Why? (laughs) I don't know. That's all I know how to say. We practice it. You repeatedly do it over and over again. You train, you exercise to get better at what you're doing. Well, what does it mean to practice sin? It means to continuously, repeatedly do it to the point where you have sin as a life pattern. Think about lying. If you have the pattern of lying in your life, you tell a lie. And then what happens? Eventually, you're going to get caught. 
And of course, because the first lie worked out so well, what do you do to get out of that lie? Tell a second lie. And then that eventually comes and you tell a third lie. And after a while, you don't know where the line is between reality and that which is false. One lie becomes two lies, becomes three lies, and pretty soon you are not just occasionally lying. We would actually call you something. What would we call you? A liar. Now, it's not just that you occasionally lie. Lying has become your characteristic, a word that you are now defined by. Are you starting to get the sense of what it means to practice sin? John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Notice how John defines sin. Lawlessness. This word literally means no law, that which is contrary to the law. You see, sin is a deliberate rejection of God's His standards and a resort to one's own desires. It's rejecting God's law by breaking it. But lawlessness is not merely disobedience because it's also willful rebellion against God and His supreme authority. Let me illustrate this for you. The five-year-old wants cookies. Mom says, no cookies. Now, why is it that the five-year-old, literally two minutes after the mom says, no cookies, finds his hand where? In the cookie jar. Where did the sin begin? Mom comes in and says, what are you doing? I just told you no cookies. He says, mom, I don't know how I got here. One minute I was walking through the kitchen, and the next minute my hand was in the cookie jar, and I was pulling those suckers out. I don't understand how it happened, mom. And mom, what do you say? Not today, we're not. Uh Uh-uh. Now you're getting a spanking for the cookies and for lying. Where did the sin begin? At some point in his little five-year-old mind, he said, Mom has authority. She's telling me no. I don't like that. I want cookies. My desire comes first. Therefore, I come first. And what happens? Lawlessness, rebellion on the inside motivates, drives us to do what on the outside? Lawlessness, disobedience. That's what John is talking about here. It's no different with God. Why do I disobey God's Word? Who wrote this? God. God, I don't want to do it your way. My way is better. God, your way doesn't make sense. It's not logical. I don't agree, God. I don't believe. Therefore, I will not do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. Where did the rebellion and the lawlessness begin? On the outside or the inside? the inside. See, the one who habitually practices sin lives as if there is no law, as if there is no God. And hear me, this is the mark of an unbeliever. Romans 1, Ken taught us through this passage. Seems like just yesterday, doesn't it? Just yesterday, we were in Romans 1. And what does Romans 1, 18 to 32 talk about? God gives mankind an understanding that there is a God. And what does mankind do in rebellion? Suppresses that truth and unrighteousness and begins to worship not the creator, but what? The creation. And it's amazing. You get down to verse 32, and it says, So does the one who practices sin, 
And then what does the sinner do who's practicing sin in direct rebellion against God? They begin to applaud those who also do it with them. It's like they have a little sin club. Hey, good for you. I'm doing sin. Are you doing sin? Yay, keep going. Does that happen today? Have you looked at the news recently? I mean, we're celebrating sin. Turn over to Galatians. Galatians 5, it's one of our sin lists that we have. Galatians 5, contrasting the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're obvious, which are, here it is, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. This is not even an exhaustive list. He's saying it's things like this. There's more to it. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who, what? What's the word? Practice. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the mark of an unbeliever. One who has rebelled against God and His Word says, no God, my way is right. And as a result of that rebellion in their hearts, they then begin to demonstrate on the outside patterns of disobedience and lawlessness. God says, do it this way. I say, no, I'll do it this way. See, here John is showing us what sinful behavior is and what it looks like, and he's doing it by contrasting lawlessness with righteousness. We're going to see that in verse 7 and verse 10 when he brings in this idea of righteousness. My mom is a cartoonist. I'd like to think that I got some artistic ability. I grew up watching cartoons that my mom had painted. Pretty cool. I didn't have to find an excuse to get up and watch cartoons. My mom was my excuse. I draw a straight line, and then I step back. What does that line, does it look straight or crooked? Again, mom, cartoonist. I'm like, that is the straightest line I've ever drawn. And then you know what happens? My daughter, Whitney, she's always drawing on everything. She's like, she's got this artistic bug in her. She comes along and says, hey, Dad, nice line. She takes her ruler, slaps it down, draws a line right next to mine, says, blessings be upon you, and then goes off. And I'm taking this picture that I drew my line and her line, and all of a sudden what seemed to be straight in comparison to that which is perfectly straight, all of a sudden what does it reveal? Straight reveals that which is crooked. But it wasn't until I was able to see a straight line that I saw, you know, this isn't as righteous as maybe I thought it was. In fact, this seems a little lawless. That's what John is doing for us this morning. Well, notice he goes on in verse 5. You know that he appeared. Who's the he? Well, he's already talked about in verse 2. We know that when he appears, we will be just like him. What is he talking about there? The second coming of Christ. So what is he talking about in verse 5? That when he appeared. Which coming is that? The first one or the second one? It's the first coming. When he came born of a virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and three days later rose from the grave. John says, you know that he appeared 
in order to do what? To take away sins. Again, the primary reason why Christ came to earth was to take away sins. Take away sins, it has the idea of lifting something away, removing it, specifically our habitual lawlessness. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Christ came and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. Colossians 2.14 has this beautiful picture of God canceling out our certificate of debt, taking it up and nailing it to the cross. What is He doing when He's canceling that certificate of debt? The wages of our sin are death and we deserve to go to hell. And instead, Christ takes that, lifts it up and puts it on Himself. And notice John reminds us this isn't just any Savior. In Him there is no sin. Only a sinless Christ could take away our sins because when He died on the cross, He bore our sins in His sinless body. He lifted away our sin, took it upon Himself. And when He does that, He not only removes the penalty of sin when He lifts it off of us, the penalty, eternal damnation, He also lifts the control of sin over a believer. In fact, one of the marks of a Christian is to be free from the dominating rule and control of sin. On the back of your handout, I I thought there's no better person to quote than the Apostle Paul. So I I, I quoted most of Romans chapter 6. Because it's a beautiful passage talking about how Christ did this. We were slaves to our sin. I just want to highlight verse 6. It says, Our old self was crucified with Him so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See, if a Christian is enslaved to the practice of sin, John's argument here is that their claim of being saved by the sinless Savior would be meaningless. How can you say that the sinless Savior died for you, lifted your sin off of you, and yet you are still practicing the very thing that He died to save you from? That's His argument. This is taught throughout the Scriptures. I don't have time to go to all of these passages. I just want to mention a few. Ephesians 5, 7 and 9 Ephesians 5, 7, and 9, he says, You formerly were dark, formerly darkness, Paul says, but now you are light in Christ, therefore walk as children of the light. You were dark in sin, but in Christ you are made alive in light. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 9? Paul tells the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols. You literally were worshiping idols. You repented, turned from those idols, and turned to God. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 6.11. I do want us to look at this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We have another sin list here. But notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. What were they like? Well, look at the verses right before. 
Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous, the lawless, will not inherit the kingdom of God? This sounds familiar. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate homosexuals, thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Christian, that's what you were. Such were some of you. Implying what? If that's what you were, what are you now? Not that. You were that. Paul tells us why. But you were washed with what? The precious blood of Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. That word sanctified simply is the process where God makes us more like Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous. God took the righteousness of sinless Christ, took it off of Him, and declared you righteous the moment you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's what you were. You're not now. See, if a Christian could continue in an unbreakable, unrepentant pattern of sin, what would that say about the effectiveness and the power of the cross? Think about that. The cross is powerless. At the very least, it only works some of the time. Did Christ die so that you would be freed from the grip of the sin sometimes? No. What's stronger? The grip of sin or the grip of your Savior? Tell me. Christ. Doesn't always feel that way, but that's what John is saying here. Romans 6, 10 to 11, Paul says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, what is the life that Christ lives? The resurrection life. We're going to celebrate it in two weeks. Christ is not in the grave. He defeated sin. And in Him, the life that I live, it reminds me of Galatians 2.20. The life that I live by faith, been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ living in me. Paul goes on in Romans 6. He li- the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are dead to sin. That is a theological reality. The moment you put your faith in Christ and turn from your sin to Him. The completed work accomplished by Christ on the cross gives us the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. It gives us life. So what would we say to that man who is enslaved to sinful lust, or at least feels that way, is starting to lose hope? How would this truth of this completed work of Christ help him in his hour of hopelessness? Well, if you're born of God, you can say no. Not because of you and your strength and your ability. So often in church, in counseling and discipleship, someone comes and says, hey, just tell me what I got to do to fix this. What are they looking for? A solution. Often Christ is not part of that solution. They just want to know, okay, just tell me what to do, some steps to do, or, you know, do I have to, like, I have a friend that, you know, they, they just say a prayer in their mind, is that all I got to do? Just tell me what to do. Is there a pill to take? Is there, how do I get rid of this? And Christ is saying it's only in the completed work of the cross 
That's where it begins. And this is hopeful, isn't it? Why is it hopeful? Because it's not up to you to break the grip of sin. Christ has done it. What tense did I use? Past. It's done. It's completed. Because He rose from the grave, God accepted His sacrifice in place of our death that we deserved, and Christ proved that He had power over death and sin. So I would encourage this young man to be reliant on Christ, to go back to have you truly repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ. Well, that's the first work of God. Let's look at the second, the ongoing work. The ongoing work. This is Christ's ongoing life in the believer. If the completed work is the act of salvation, the ongoing work is this process of what we would call sanctification, where Christ, God, is making us more like Jesus. Notice what John says in verse 6. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. This word abide, again, is in the present tense. If you are continually habitually abiding in Christ. Now, what does that word abide mean? It literally means to continue in or remain in, to abide in Christ, to continue or remain in Him, to be joined to Him through repentance and faith. In fact, John uses this illustration in John 15, Christ is a vine, and true believers are fruit-bearing branches. I think why John uses that illustration of what it means to abide in Christ is because I understand how a plant works. If I have a vine that's growing in, in nutrients and sun and water, again, that, that's, that's the extent of my gardening experience right there. That's it. That's all I know. But I know if I'm doing those things, what should happen to the vine? It grows. And what comes out of the vine? Branches, just like my apple tree. If I plant an apple tree and it starts growing and it's healthy and the branches come out, what do I expect to see developing on those branches? Fruit. And so John uses this, this illustration of if you are abiding in the vine, then guess what? You'll have life and you'll be growing and you'll be vibrant and you'll be growing in victory over sin. The ongoing process of mortifying, saying no to sin, mortifying and killing sin. Is John saying that a true Christian can't sin ever? In fact, when I went to seminary, I had a professor that held this view. He taught us First John. He says, see, that, that's what he's saying. True Christians can't sin. Do you believe that? How many of you have sinned recently? Anybody? Yeah. The rest of you are liars. If you keep doing that, it will become a pattern. I'm just saying, because I love you. When is the last time you sinned? Recently? Well, actually this morning. And it's not my fault, it's my husband's fault. I thought we already went over this. It's those children God gave me. You and I sin all the time. John is not saying that a true Christian can't sin ever. If that's what he was saying, he would be contradicting what he already said. Look back at 1 John 1.8. Remember this, 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, basically I'm not a sinner, 
We are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. It says kind of a similar thing in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John's not saying that we don't still have a sin nature. In fact, according to 1 John 1, 9, the verse right between these two verses, when we sin, what does God calling us to do? If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive us, to cleanse us from all of our sin, from all of our unrighteousness. So John's not saying, hey, the minute you put your faith in Christ, you're done with sin. No, you still have that struggle. And when you do, what should you do? Confess it to God. What he is saying here is that if you have been joined to Christ through repentance and faith, then you will not habitually practice sin. Again, this word sins is in the present tense. It's constant, present tense, present tense, continual, habitual action. This means that the true Christian will not and cannot continue to habitually be engaged in willful, unrepentant disobedience against God. And he goes on to clarify that. The one who habitually practices sin doesn't know Christ, hasn't seen Christ by faith. That's what he's talking about. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. This is good news. It's good news, Christian. Because the lawlessness of sin that you were enslaved by no longer controls you. It no longer dominates us because of the completed and the ongoing work of Christ. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel that saves us, sanctifies us. And so in verse 7, he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Again, one of the reasons why he was writing this book is because these Christians had heretics, false teachers that were coming in, teaching them all kinds of false things like Gnosticism. Body bad, spirit good. The spirit's good, then that means my body can do whatever it wants. So just sin all you want on the outside as long as you're pure on the inside. Does that exist today? Absolutely. In fact, when we were missionaries in Albania, we served with a missionary who came from another denomination within the evangelical Christendom who believed in what we call entire sanctification. You know what entire sanctification is? He believed that he could come to a place where he was entirely perfected, not in heaven, on earth. And I said, okay, you're married with children, right? How does that work? I mean, I, w- I was not making fun of him. I wanted to understand, how does that work? I can't imagine being sinless. And he began to explain and I'm like, where are you getting that from? And he took, he actually used 1 John as one of his texts. I'm like, that's not anywhere in the scripture. You know, there's another view that, that only the willful sins, the willful sins are the ones that you confess. The ones that you didn't mean to, that's okay. In fact, even the Catholic Church has this view historically. They've, they've taught a view that basically only willful, deliberate sins like venial, they call them venial sins. Those are the little tiny ones. Those are okay. Those are the ones that you can go and confess and be forgiven for. But if you, and they make a distinction between venial sins and moral sins, what's a moral sin? Anybody grow up in the Catholic Church? What's the difference? What's a moral sin? The biggies, adultery, murder, things like that. So if you don't tell a little white lie, that's okay. We'll give, give you confession, forgiveness for that. But if you do a big sin, guess what? Whoo! 
hot place for you, buddy. Or at the very least, purgatory, which the Catholic Church still teaches. What are they saying? The power of the cross is only sufficient for what? Little sins, not big ones. We have heresy even today in the church. John's warning little children, Christians, young believers, make sure no one deceives you. It's just as applicable for us today. So John gives them the positive truth that a sign that we are righteous like Christ is that we will progressively and more consistently live out the righteousness of Christ and be like Him. And this righteousness is practical obedience, a growing desire to be holy as Christ is. I just want to make sure this is clear. Righteous deeds on the outside don't make you righteous on the inside. Do you understand that? Because this is where we get caught. If I can just do more godly things, more Christ-like things, then that will make me righteous. Rather, it is the righteousness of Christ applied to us at the moment of our repentance and faith that enables us to practice right or godly deeds. Did you get that? That's huge. Because most other religions flip it. They say if you do enough on the outside, if you can just do more righteousness, less lawlessness, more righteousness, that will make you righteous and therefore acceptable to God. And that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that you are incapable of pleasing God. You are incapable. Ken just taught us a message on this. God looks down. No one pursues God. No one is holy. No one is righteous. Not even one. For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a depraved, sinful heart. And we need the righteousness of Christ applied to us at the moment of our salvation that enables us, that empowers us to say no to sin and yes to God. This is taught throughout the Bible. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who begins this work? He who began it in you. Who is that? Christ. It's God. Who's the one that completes it? Is that you? Just try harder, Christian. Just, you know, when the, the, the internet just say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to click my heels three times. I'm going to spin around four times, and then I'm going to run out the door. Where's dad going? Oh, I don't know. He just ran out the door. Is it up to you to try harder? Just try harder. Be more disciplined. Christ is the one who begins it. Christ is the one who completes it. What about Titus 2.14? Titus 2.14, it says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These people are excited about honoring God and obeying him. This is progressive sanctification, and it's why Jesus used the example in Matthew 7, good tree produces what kind of fruit? Good fruit. Bad tree will produce what? Bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit. 
if you have lawlessness in your heart, if you are rebelling against God, is it any wonder that you will begin to practice lawlessness? And that will become evident. It will become obvious, maybe not right away, but over time. But if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, His completed work on the cross has been applied. He's lifted that sin away from you and He's taken it on Himself. And what does that mean? It means not that you're free of sin, you still have remaining sin. Again, what did Paul say? Now you are a new creature, a new creature in Christ. So you are a new creature, but you still have that remaining sin, that flesh. And so you will spend a lifetime progressively, meaning over time, and sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. Sometimes you have seasons, you have those occasional, okay, maybe a little more than occasional, where you're struggling with sin. But the reality is that the power of the gospel saves you and sanctifies you. How would this ongoing work encourage the struggling mother of two? How would this truth encourage her? Think about it. Is she going to struggle with sinful anger over unmet desires and expectations? You think so? So I present the gospel to her and I go, are you a Christian? She says, yes, I'm a Christian. Great. You're never going to struggle with anger again. What kind of counselor would I be? A liar? Oh, great. Now I'm doing it. That's how it starts. You think she's going to struggle with anger? Absolutely. Because she is struggling with sin. Her husband is struggling with sin. Those kids are filled with it. I know that. Nobody had to teach them how to be knuckleheads. She is going to struggle with it. But if she is abiding in Christ as her Savior, she'll follow God's advice from Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 which says you want to know how to run this race with endurance, how to lay aside those things that entangle you in your journey. What do you do? Fix your eyes on counseling. Fix your eyes on him changing. Fix your eyes on a better job, a better life, losing 20 pounds. What is the solution? The writer of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Christ. Because in verse 2 it says, he is the author and perfecter of our salvation. What does that mean? He authored it. He wrote it. He saved us. He began it. And what does it mean? The perfecter. He authored our salvation and He perfects us. This is this ongoing work. And so I would encourage this mother, look, sometimes you're going to encounter trouble and you're gonna, it's going to be someone else's sin. Sometimes it's going to be your own sin. But if you can learn in that moment to think, what's making me angry? It's an unmet expectation, an unmet desire. And if you can instead say, you know what, God? That's not in my control. It's in your control, not mine. I'm not going to get angry about that. Instead, I am going to learn to fix my eyes on Christ and trust Him. In fact, that's what it says in the rest of verse 2 and verse 3. Thinking about what Christ did on the cross, how He despised the shame. He bore our sins. He did it for us. And He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think she's a little weary some, she thinks she's lost heart? Absolutely. Because she's forgotten to take her eyes off of the situation and put it back on Christ. She's not in control. Just like I didn't feel like I was in control when my girls were practicing driving. 
But guess what? I, we know the one who is in control, and we can promise. We, we can promise ourselves because God has promised it to us that if we honor God, if we obey God, if we choose to respond in a biblical way to trouble, that he will care for us because he's a good father, and he cares for us. He will not leave us or abandon us. And as she learns to respond to biblically to these troubles, she will give in to anger less and less. This ongoing work of Christ is so practical for us as we struggle with sin. Well, this leads us to the third work. I'm going to go through this one quickly. The destroyed works. The destroyed works. I like this one. Christ's destruction of the devil's works in verse 8. Notice what it says. The one who practices sin is of whom? The devil. That doesn't sound good. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. This verse has two very important elements. The first is that the person who habitually practices sin is a child of Satan. That's what that little preposition of, it's a genitive. And it has the idea of origin. You originate from. Just like if you were to say, my four daughters originated from their mother and me. They came from. That's the idea. You are of Satan if you practice sin. Is this ever positive? I don't know about you, but when my grandma used to say this to me, what the devil's gotten into you? That was never a good thing. You ever had someone say that to you? What the devil's gotten into you? What is she saying? You are acting like a demon. Quit it. In fact, that's what she would say. What the devil's gotten into you? Quit it. Just like that. I, I'm like mimicking my grandma. Quit it. I don't want to. If the devil's in me, let's party. Yeah. We needed to pray for my grandma. Had to live with me. This is not a good thing. If you are habitually, in an unrepentant way, practicing sin, you are of the devil. Why? The devil has sinned from the beginning. Who committed the very first sin? Sometimes you want to say Adam and Eve, but who sinned before Adam and Eve? When Satan fell from heaven and took a third of the angels with him, why did he fall? Because who did he want to be? He was not content being a created angelic being. He wanted to be God. In fact, you can look Isaiah 14 Verses 12 to 14 talks about that. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. So not only did the devil commit the first sin from the beginning, but he also continually attempts to get as many people rebelling and sinning against God. Look back at John 8, 44. Jesus really knew how to say things to encourage people and motivate them to think about what he was saying. He's having this conversation with these Jews and in verse 44, notice these kind words that he says. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Is that a nice thing to say? Was it true? Absolutely. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is characterized 
by this, for he is a liar and what? The father of lies. Do you realize that when we lie, we are acting like whom? Satan, the father of lies. What did Christ come to do? To destroy the devil's works. Because the reality is those who are truly born again will practice righteousness. What will the children of Satan practice? Sin. Remember Kyle taught us 1 Peter 5. Satan is like a what kind of animal? A roaring what? Lion. And what does Peter call him? Our friend? An acquaintance? What does he call him? Our adversary. He is our enemy. And what is he seeking to do? To devour us. So the person who habitually practiced sin is a child of the devil, but notice the last part of this verse, Christ came to destroy the devil's works. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. In the focus of the devil's works, I was going to take the time to walk you through all the different works, and I realized I didn't have time. If you start looking at the Scriptures, there's all kinds of things that the devil does from, from heresy and, and trying to get us to be tempted and give in to sin to doubt salvation when we are truly saved, all kinds of things. But if you just boil all that down, the focus of the devil's works is really to undermine the truth of God's character and his redemptive plan for his creation. I'd encourage you, if you've never read, read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he does a phenomenal job of writing from the perspective of a head demon training a younger demon how to get these Christians away from God. Nominal it's a beautiful work, and it shows you that's what Satan is trying to do. When Christ came to die on the cross, he destroyed Satan's power in the life of the believer. How do we know this? Because the Scriptures tell us this. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We were enslaved in this domain of darkness, and what did Christ do? He rescued us. He lifted us up and transferred us where? To the kingdom of his heavenly Father. First John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than what? He who is in the world. The Spirit of God is in you. He is stronger than Satan. Satan is under the authority. He submits to God. And in contrast, the unbeliever is still under Satan's power. That's what John talks about in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, not just the unbeliever, but the whole world system. Or he talks about it in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. You formerly were walked in the darkness. You were under his power. If we habitually practice sin without decrease, then whom do we belong to? Who does John say? Satan. We're joined to Satan. But if the sin patterns decrease... That can only happen because of the work of Christ in destroying the devil's work and hold over us. In fact, one of the most damaging things, I think, to Christianity today is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. When professing children of God live like children of the devil. Does that happen in the church today, Christian? We talk about Jesus, and in reality, we live like a demon. 
How can this mother of two learn to think biblically about her anger and what Christ accomplished on the cross on her behalf? You know, amazingly, there's this passage in Ephesians 4, verses 26 to 27, that talks about how she can deal with her anger. In fact, it commands us to be righteously angry. Be angry, yet do not sin. Deal with today's problems God's way. The verse goes on to say, and do not let the sun go down on what? Your anger. Deal with today's problems today. Whether it's unrighteous anger or even righteous anger. How quickly does righteous anger become unrighteous anger? But then do you remember what it says in verse 27? Why should we not have unrighteous anger? Why should we deal with anger on a daily basis? Because verse 27 says, and do not give the devil an what? Opportunity. You know what an opportunity is? It's almost as if every time she gets sinfully angry, she is inviting Satan back into her heart to set up a base of operations. And what does that lead to? Well, the verse 31 talks about all the things that come from this. Bitterness and anger and slander and clamor. All of those things. Sounds like one of those sinless that we read earlier in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Satan has no power over you, Christian. And yet, when you do things like allow unrighteous anger to drive you, what happens? You are inviting Satan back in. Set a base of operations in your heart. That's why Galatians 5.13 says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity, as literally a stronghold for Satan. But with humility of mind, serve others in love. It's as if she needs to learn this, that in Christ she has the power to say no to unrighteous anger and yes to our Heavenly Father. She can choose not to participate in Satan's work of sin. Why? Because of the completed work and the ongoing work of Christ. Because Christ has destroyed the works of Satan. Well, there's a fourth. There's a fourth, the regenerating work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, John drives his argument home. He says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Born of God. This is a true Christian. It's the idea of regeneration, that which was once dead in transgressions and sins from Ephesians 2.1, in Christ is made alive. Born again. That's why we often refer to Christians as, are you born again? Meaning you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but when you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, God brought you to life. Regenerated you. Regenerated by the completed work of Christ. And why is the true Christian unable to habitually practice sin without repentance? John tells us, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, present tense, because he is born of God. See, this seed is the divine seed of life. It's the life of God planted in us by the Holy Spirit, John 3 Verses 5 to 8, through the Word of God, 1 Peter 1, 23. And this rebirth takes place when we're born of God through repentance and faith in Christ. It's all God's work alone. Even the ability to repent, God grants us. The ability to believe, God grants us. 
and the seed of life is incompatible. It's unable to cohabitate with unrepentant, habitual, practiced sin. I mean, it's why Jesus used the picture of light and darkness. If you have a perfectly pitch black room and you light a candle, what happens to the darkness? It flees. They cannot cohabitate the same space. In the same way, if you have the seed of life, the seed of God in you, if you are born of God, regenerated by the power of the cross, it's incompatible that you would practice lawlessness without repentance. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in you, convicting you, showing you, opening your mind, reminding you of Scriptures, making you feel guilty in a good way. I shouldn't do that. Christ died so that I don't have to do that. Why do I keep doing that? And just as a physical seed planted in the ground produces a specific type of plant life, so too does God's seed of life produce a very specific type of righteousness that breaks the control and dominance of sin in our life. Because if it weren't for the God's grace and regenerating power, you and I would be enslaved to sin in its grip. In fact, for those caught in life-dominating sins like pornography, gambling, alcoholism, and drug addiction, it may be hard to imagine breaking free. And you realize the world offers all kinds of solutions. They offer medicine. They offer psychology and psychiatry. They offer group therapy programs. In fact, I was doing a little research on this. This is a multi-million dollar business right now in America. Do you know what the success rate of those programs are? Somewhere between 3 and 5%. People who, again, March Madness is great unless you have a gambling problem, right? Pornography, alcoholism, life-dominating sins. And the world offers solutions and 3 to 5% find some hope. Why? Because what have almost all of these programs forgotten or failed to address? Those people are enslaved to sin. Apart from the redeeming, regenerating power of Christ, they will remain enslaved to their sin. What do they need, Christian? The gospel. What are we giving them? I hope it's the gospel. If nothing less, this message should make you thankful for what God's done in your life, and it should motivate you to get out of these doors and tell people there is hope. You can break free from sin's grip, but it's only through Christ. Amen? It's only in Him. That's why I love counseling. Well, I love it and I hate it. You know what I mean? It's hard. It makes me feel like an idiot half the time. But I love helping people draw them to the Word of God where there's hope. In Christ, you have a hope and you've lost it. Let me help you. Well, in verse 10, John says the conclusion is obvious. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It is black and white. It is clear. Because lawlessness, rebellion on the inside will drive a person to what? Practice lawlessness. But if you have the seed of God in you, if you have been regenerated by the completed power of the cross and the ongoing work of of abiding in Christ, because Christ has destroyed Satan's power in your life, you will experience progressive sanctification and freedom from sin. It's obvious. 
In fact, that's why John mentions brotherly love. If you're a child of Satan, you're not going to love your brother. What is loving your brother? The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor. If you're not loving God with all your heart, what makes you think you're going to love your brother? So why is loving your brother a sign that God's, the gospel has got a hold of your heart? You get how that works. The seed is in your heart. If you are born of God, you will grow to love others as God has loved you. That's why John makes that even a sign. Let me go back to my opening question. How much can a Christian sin and still be a Christian? How much can we sin, Chris? That's what I want to know. How much can I sin and still go to heaven? Simple answer is, no matter how much a Christian sins or how bad those sins are, they are all covered by the precious blood of Christ. Sinning too much doesn't send us to hell. Did you get that? Sinning too much doesn't send us to hell. Rejecting God does. Rejecting Christ, that's what sends us to hell. And when you reject God, when you rebel against your Creator, that lawlessness in your heart and attitude, your motives, your desires, what will it produce in your life? Lawlessness. we reject God, we are slaves to our sin because, as Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. We are a child of Satan. Is it possible for this man who clicked a link and began to habitually practice immorality without repentance to still be a Christian? There's no repentance, no change. He's still doing it. Is it possible for him to be a Christian? According to John, he's saying no. There's no change. There's no brokenness. Nothing's changing. He's just still clicking the link. He's going. He's feeding his immoral appetites in the world. Because to continue to regularly engage in an immoral lifestyle without godly repentance, without progressive change, goes against this new life given by Christ. Now you say, well, Chris, hold on a second. Because I knew a friend like that, and he felt bad about what he was doing. He even tried to change. Is it possible for an unbeliever to feel bad about what they're doing? Absolutely. And if we had time, I would take you to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, that talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. What is worldly sorrow? Why would an unchristian feel bad that they sin? Ah, I'm sorry I got caught. I now have to deal with the consequences. I will say whatever you want me to say if you will just stop talking. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to deal with it. What do you want me to say? I'm sorry. Are they really sorry? No, they're sorry they have to listen to you yap. Maybe they're sorry because, you know what I did, it actually hurt you, and I'm sorry for that. Does that sorrow make them want to stop doing it? More often than not, no. Now, what does that passage in 2 Corinthians 7 say godly sorrow does? Godly sorrow, according to the will of God, what does it do? It brings about a repentance without regret. God, I did it. I confess. I am a sinner. I did that, and I did that, and I did that because of my proud heart. I admit it. I agree with you, God. It was sin. It was lawlessness. Will you forgive me? Question mark. And what am I asking God to do? Yes. 
And then it goes on in verse 11 to talk about not only is the motive different, the motive is not focused on me, the motive is focused on how my sin offended my holy God. And what's the end result? What does worldly sorrow lead to? That passage says death, because the wages of sin is death. So it's possible for that unbelieving man, if he is an unbeliever, to feel bad about what he's doing, even to try to change. But without the regenerating power of the gospel, that change will not truly last, and it won't be honoring to the Lord. But verse 11 says that true God-honoring change leads to zeal, the fear of God, zealousness, indignation, which is righteous anger. It leads to all these things. Change. Because of the completed work and the ongoing work of Christ in their heart. Now, let me ask you this. If he is a Christian and he's struggling to click the link to look at that, is it possible that he might continue to struggle with immorality all of his life? He's a genuine Christian. He genuinely repents. Is it possible that he will struggle with clicking that link the rest of his life? How many times have you come to communion and confessed the same sin? Month after month after month after month. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. That would be awkward. That's me. Has that ever happened to you? Month after month, you come and you confess the same sin, and with your head bowed, you say, Lord... I don't understand why I keep struggling with this sin. Has it ever happened to you? And you're crying out, God, why do I keep going back like a dog to its vomit? I'm set free from this. Anybody else? And it may not be pornography. It may be something else. Is it possible for a Christian to continue to struggle with sin all of his life, all of her life? Yes. But what is the hope of this passage? Why do we call sanctification progressive? What does that word mean? If you had asked me when I was, I got saved in 1988. It's 30 years this year I've been a Christian. If you had asked me one year after I became a Christian, Chris, are you seeing decreasing patterns of sin in your life? You know what I would have told you? No, I am struggling. In fact, for the first three years of my Christianity, I thought, I, um, there's no way I'm a Christian. There's no way that my profession of faith is producing this amount of sinfulness. By year five, if you had asked me, Chris, are you seeing a decreasing pattern of sin? I'm like, well, a little bit. I, I, I can't, in five years, I can look. I'm seeing God is changing, and I'm, I'm repenting of those sins, and I'm seeing change in my desire. Because what is Psalm 37 for? The key is desire. If you delight in the Lord, what will He do? Give the desires of your heart. I think that's why Paul could confess in Romans 7, the sin that I don't want to do, I do, and the sin that I want to do, I'm not doing. Because the closer you are to God, the more sensitive you are to sin. You become offended by it more quickly, and you're like, God saved me from that. If you had asked me 15 years, I would have said, I am not the same man that I was. I still struggle, but the patterns, they're they're breaking up, and, and I don't struggle like I did. 
And here we are 30 years later after a Christian. If you ask me, Chris, how are you doing? I would say, praise God. I'm still fighting. I'm still in the struggle. But it's not the same because of Christ. Maybe you can relate to that. But that's why this this sanctifying process is called progressive. The work that Christ did is completed once for all, but this ongoing work will take a lifetime. And Christian, you are no longer in the grip of sin. You can choose to say no. Will you? Are you? Well, this morning we have examined four works of God that have broken the pattern of habitual sin in a Christian's life. Because a true child of God is marked by the growing habitual practice of righteous and godly living. Why? Because the works of God have broken sin's grip, freeing him, freeing her to love and obey while empowering them to give in to temptation less and less. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But in contrast, the child of Satan is marked by the habitual practice of unrepentant sin in his life. He may feel sorry. He may feel bad. He may even try to change and have some level of success, even if it is only 3 to 5%. But at the end of the day, God-honoring change never lasts because he is enslaved to sin. There is hope for the man who clicked a link. There's hope for this angry mother of two. But it starts and it continues in the gospel. How did you do? Did you pass the test? Are you seeing decreasing patterns of sin in your life? If so, praise God with me, will you? God, thank you. If not, I pray that this would be the day of your salvation, that you turn from your sin, that you confess and admit, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. God, will you forgive me? I put my faith in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the clarity of your word, which does give us hope. It gives us hope because if we believe in you and if we follow what your word says, you have completed this work. You are doing the ongoing work of sanctification in our life. And it's hopeful because it's not up to us. It's your work. And so, Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that that maybe they feel the same pain. They feel like they are in the, the grip of sin. That you would show them their need for Christ. And there may be others here, maybe even believers, who are struggling. They're in a season of doubt or a season of, of just struggle. Lord, in Christ, you've given them everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything they need, they have in Christ. Would you give them the grace to appropriate it and to live it? And would we as a church come around them and help them and pray for them and love them and help them in these times of struggle? That this church would be a church that glories in your redemptive purpose in our life. Would you be honored and glorified 
as we strive to understand, to apply and apply these truths. It's in the precious name of Christ we, play, we pray, amen.